Welcome to Business Leader Breakthroughs, where we help unlock the potential in you, your teams, and your business. I'm your host, Ryan Castle, along with Dr. Mike Ashby. We'll share insights, experiences, and stories on achieving breakthrough success in business and life. To learn more, click the link in the episode show notes or go to thebreakthrough.co. Now let the breakthroughs begin. Hey Rob, welcome along to the podcast. Fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, brilliant to be here. Can't wait to chat to you about leadership and all the things that you love and I love. Uh, and I tell you, a man who's written a book called Unlock, I feel like you're going to uh, help us literally unlock some of the uh, secrets of greatness around leadership. Is that is that what the audience can expect today? Look, I think there are a few insights we all discover on our journeys. And for me, leadership is not easy for many people and many teams. So yeah, I want to give you a few little keys that might help people just get to the next level for them. Yeah, and interested in to explore uh, some of maybe those old paradigms of leadership and explore whether they still fit in today's uh, new world. So looking forward to diving into that. But hey, Rob, let us dive into a few fast facts so that our audience can get to know you, the man, a little bit better. So are you a breakfast or dinner person? Breakfast all the way. Uh, give yeah. me a good breakfast in a cafe. I'm partial mm-hmm. to the smashed avo, call me a cliche, but um, yeah breakfast all the way for me yeah and do you continue the cliche with a, a nice little macchiato on the side or how, how does that roll absolutely like uh, every morning at the moment we're in lockdown so every morning my routine is i walk up to my local cafe stick my mask on get my coffee and then start work so that's actually a nice little routine for me at the moment which i don't normally do but uh yeah good, coffee all good the way. job and uh when you're out of lockdown and you're allowed to uh, go on holiday again would we likely find you bungee jumping doing something super adventurous or are you more like the pool lounger and a cocktail in hand kind of kind of person i'm the bungee jumper except i've never done a bungee jump but i have done paragliding and um i've flown a hang glider just to push myself on that fear of heights but i think right. the bungee jump is just one step too far so i've gone i want to do a skydive mm-hmm. But I'm just working out where's my limit. At the moment, my limit is uh, is hang gliding. Right. And you, you self-piloted the, the hang glider? Or is that no, a- no, no, no. I had, I had a guy called uh, Tiger who uh, we did a dual hang glide above a castle called New Schwanstein in Germany, which is like the model for the Disney castle. It's awesome. Like, like this little mountain and you kind of charge off the, the top of this mountain over this amazing castle. But yeah, Tiger was my, was my German pilot. Yeah. Well, I, I guess you've got a pretty good outcome with a hang gliding pilot. If he's still there doing hang gliding, he must be pretty good at it, right? Yeah. Look, but uh, funny enough, the, the person before me actually kind of plunged over the cliff and we thought they'd kind of gone to their death. But it turns out there was a little extra um, safe area just below you couldn't see. So literally the person before me, it looked like they plunged to their death, but they didn't. So it was a bit scary. Yeah. Uh, not so confidence inspiring, maybe. Yeah. Okay, as a as a book author, do you like the real thing? Do you like to hold the physical copy, or do you uh, navigate to the Kindle electronic world? You know, I have a real portfolio approach. So I'm big on audio books. Obviously, big on podcasts. Um, I love physical books. I love eBooks. Give it to me anyway, and I will absorb it. In my, you know, like absolutely. Yeah, brilliant. And I was uh, listening to a, a podcast myself with my family actually uh last week and i turned to my family said oh what's the what's the one common theme you observe with all of these people that are leaders or have been successful and the the common thread that just seemed to go through every single one of them whether they were sports people academics business leaders community leaders whatever it was the common thread seemed to be they were all vivacious readers um in whatever form you know sometimes it's uh podcasts or audio books or whatever but it seemed to be that very very common thread 
that uh, people that have risen to their version of success, uh, common thread seem to be they were uh, learners and readers. What do they say? Leaders, leaders are readers, I think the, the term goes. I think you're that little vice, though. My vice, my secret vice is true crime. So although I read a lot of business books, um, I do. If I'm, if I'm being bad, I'll kind of go for an hour into some true crime and read that. So or listen to a true yes. crime podcast. So that's yes. my vice. Yes, uh, I have descended into the uh, area of true crime. I try, I, I have to kind of descend and then get myself out of it because otherwise they're so compelling. I find I can spend uh, way too much time in there. But yes, I, I share the, uh, the same um, passion for that. Okay, cats or dogs? Goldfish. Yeah, I'm more a fish and parrots guy. Okay. Cats or dogs. And my eight-year-old has just decided we're going goldfish. So goldfish right. is top of mind right now. Okay. So, no, okay. That's the limit. There's no there's goldfish, and that's it. Got it. Got it. Okay. And uh, have you hosted a goldfish funeral yet? When I was a kid, yes. Not lately, because we're about to get goldfish after lockdown. Yeah. Going goldfish. Yeah. But Seems to be the, uh, the the common theme with with goldfish is they. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just I wasn't that great at looking after them, but they seem to be um, requiring re- reasonably regular replacement. Shall we say? Okay. <laughs> okay. And routine wise, Robbie, you an early riser or a night owl? I like to think I'm an early riser, but if in the cold light of day, I'm actually not. So I'm probably more of a night owl, and, and a lot of my book was written in the evenings, etc. And and not, I wasn't one of these people who got up at 5 a.m. and wrote two chapters before breakfast. So right. I think I have to admit that my aspiration to be an early riser is uh, just that. Got and it. And, and yeah, learned learned behavior, I think they call that one. Yeah. And entertainment-wise, if you're choosing a, a movie, would we likely find you watching a thriller or a comedy? It's going to be a thriller. It's probably based on real life. Yeah. So um, absolutely. I love things like uh, the, the, the Lives of Others, which is a German movie about the Stasi. It's kind right. of truish and it's just amazing. So, yeah, thriller based on real life for sure. Okay. Like it. Good one. Alrighty. We love to deliver some value to our audience straight away. So interested to hear your top three and maybe just to give some context to this for the audience. We've had a pre-discussion and we've really said this idea of collective leadership, which we're going to dig into and explain a lot more. But what would be your top three insights around collective leadership, Rob? Well, the first one is going to be the trend and the reason and the need for collective leadership as distinct from leader as solo hero leading from the front. So how do we lead together and why do we need to lead together? Right. So the first one is like, why do we need to lead together? The second point is like, so, so if you're going to do that, how do you do it? Like, how do you actually get seven smart people together in a room as a leadership team or a project team and make something that's smarter than the sum of its parts? And that turns out to be surprisingly hard. And the yes. third area is really about the roadmap for that journey that any team needs to go on over a week or a month or a year. And how you need to be quite mindful about how you create the right environment for that team to grow. And when you get all these things right, you know, you really can be smarter than the sum of your parts. You can achieve things that none of you could have done alone. And that's very different because if you don't get it right, it becomes painful. It becomes really painful. You end up having a committee instead of a team. You end up um, people disagreeing, people rolling their eyes in meetings and all sorts. Right? I've, I've seen both spectrums, and there's a huge difference between dysfunctional teams and amazing teams. Sure. And I think even worse than the, the eye roll is the passive smile in the meeting and then the corridor chat afterwards, which was uh, completely misaligned, was what was being discussed in the room. And I'm sure you're familiar with Lencioni's work in the 
you know dysfunction of teams and how we have to build that trust and and those kind of elements into it so hey look really interested in your perspective around this so dig us a bit deeper on this rob around you know why why is the old model maybe of the hero leader where we've always uh maybe been romanticized through um, maybe the military through politics where we've always been lauded by this one single figure who is going to lead us to greatness um, why does that why does that model no longer work did it ever work and uh, tell us more about your thinking around this collective leadership approach I think it starts for me with with some facts right so this prevalent model as leader individualistic the hero it can be shown because um, if you look on Amazon's list of books right there are 60,000 plus books on leadership and there are also uh, you know more than 60,000 books on on, on teams because I've done the search and it just says 60,000 plus for both of those right and then if you look for leadership teams so that the top teams how they work distinctly and there are only four books Right, so we know the, the the vast majority of the content around leadership is based on how do you lead, not how do we lead. So that's becoming a problem because you know some research from Ernst and Young, you know, they they they, they asked people why more teamwork was happening in their organisations because we know that the, the amount of teamwork is increasing by like fifty percent over the last twenty years, right? And they found it was because in Rob can yeah, I'm, I'm just interested. How do we the definition of teamwork kind of around that research? How do they prescribe teamwork? Because I guess we've we'd probably say, oh no, we've been working in teams forever. Um, what is it that we're seeing? The amount of teamwork is in, increasing. Can you define that for us? Yeah, like if you track, um, you know, time use over a week in your organisation twenty years ago, we used to spend quite a lot of time on our own doing projects. And now if you track people's diaries, they're spending a lot more time, 50% more time talking, meeting, doing things like that, right? Mm. And the reason for that, the underlying reason why this is happening is because our business has obviously got more complicated. Like whatever industry you're in, it's become more complicated because competitive advantage comes from uh, niching and specializing and just making things more complicated. So I used to work in marketing and marketing used to be, well, which, which channel are you going to go to market with? TV, press, radio, cinema, outdoor. That was yeah, when yeah. I started 25 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's just not like that. It's so much more complicated. Yeah, so, yeah. so business is more complicated. Therefore, we need more teams. And therefore, as a leadership position, um, you know, to understand your organization and its complexity, you, you need a group of people to do that. You can't do it on your own. Yeah, I think another great uh, example of that is our proliferation of technology in organisations that that run our businesses. I guess I have, wear that hat of the CTO in our business, and I actually have to have a spreadsheet of all the different uh, apps that we use to run our run our business now. And it's like it's got like thirty five rows on it of the different pieces of technology that we use. I'm sure if we took that back again twenty or thirty years, um, you know, we'd be uh, a couple of elements uh, on that on that spreadsheet so yeah i totally agree i think that complexity is coming up in in every way both internal to our business and external as well yeah and i think if you imagine that um, as leader you're kind of in the in the middle of your organization and you need people around you to help kind of think through what's going on because there's a benefit from the thinking point of view right and you need to be um you think of you as like the central brain of your organization it helps to have other people being brainy with you but it's also you need those leadership team members around you, those senior members around you to actually 
literally feel what is going on in the organization at the front line, right? Because we know that leaders don't know most of the things happening at the front line with customers, with clients, with partners, etc. So you're using your leadership team as your um, your heart as well to feel the culture, what's going on at the front line. And then <clears throat> once you've kind of felt what's going on in the organization and you've thought through it, you then need the leadership team to help you as your hands, if you like, to to execute on, on your plans and deliver that in every different function in an integrated way. So that, that model of um, a leadership team helps a leader with their head, their hands and their heart is also a kind of sometimes useful metaphor. Mm. And I, I like the visual of a, a leader and a leadership team at the center of an organization because uh, we've forever thought about that traditional organization chart where there was one box at the top and then several boxes under under that and then several more. And so we end up with kind of very pyramid shape. And even just, uh, uh, I guess, from a pure uh, geometric shape perspective, the leader becomes very distant from the front line of the organization. Um, with that more central, it just even a visual perspective, it feels more uh, collective and connected. Uh, I like that. Yeah, and it's also, it also brings in elements of systems thinking where um, things aren't linear and hierarchical. You're in, ideally, leaders in the center of a network. Yes, and your leadership yes. team members are well positioned yes. to influence as key nodes. Yep. It does also remind us that the leadership team is not the only people that are influential. Like if you imagine that systems map of nodes and people and links, there are going to be other people that are going to be key influencers as well in your respective leadership approach. So leadership is not just about the leadership thing. Okay. So in addition to the complexity, maybe the volatility, um, some of the uncertainty we face now to complete the the VUCA, the ambiguity as well, um, what else is it about the old approach, the old world approach of hero leadership that's not uh, useful today? I think it's also going to be the depth and breadth of your thinking as, as a group. Uh, so... If you're the leader and you always have the best ideas, then you've got to question whether you've hired the right people. You should be having people around you that, that stretch your thinking, that improve the options that are on the table, that deepen your understanding of the situation. So from a purely kind of problem-solving intellectual point of view, uh, you need that diversity of perspective. But again, it's not easy, and I'm sure we'll come to this, but all this stuff in theory is fine. But actually, diversity of thinking is really tiring and taxing and difficult for leaders to do because we like to surround ourselves with people that think like we do. Mm -hmm. And then you just get this group thing going on. So uh, so diversity is a noble aim. And when I say diversity, I'm thinking of cognitive diversity. Uh, but it's tiring. So we need to also help leaders cross that divide. Mm. So help me feel with my understanding, Rob, if we were to say that hero leadership was at one end of the continuum, would it be fair to say that the concept of servant leadership is at the other end of the continuum? Does collective leadership sit somewhere kind of in the middle of those two? What's your view on that? Yeah, look, it absolutely could do. And we're also going to believe in you know, situational leadership where sometimes you do need to lead from the front. When there's a pandemic, someone needs to make quick decisions. You need to have that model. And sometimes you need to lead from the back and be completely a servant, the facilitator. And that's obviously a really valuable model. But yeah, collective leadership, which is more maybe democratic, that sits in the middle. And any leader needs to be able to move between those modes, those okay. three modes, right? Okay. And with all the various organizations you've worked with, how many would you say, what percentage tend to be uh, still, you know, prior you working to them, obviously, uh, are they embedded with that 
fault setting of hero leadership versus collective leadership? Well, look, uh, I have a biased sample set because I'm a leadership team coach and I often get mostly get called in by the leader to help them with their collective leadership. So I don't come across too many leaders that are that of that arrogant hero type, if you can put those two things together, because yes, heroes yes. are always arrogant. Uh, because they don't they don't want to talk to me because they're like well, everything's fine. I'm I'm the leader, I'm the hero, it's all good. I've got good command and control going here. We're we sort of everyone's doing as I tell them. Yeah, and, and luckily enough, I mean, I work with wonderful, wonderful um, clients and partners where the leaders are pretty humble and they know their strengths and weaknesses, and they're trying to create something that's greater than what they can do alone. So, so I'm pretty pretty biased in that. But we know that you know the the, the number of organisations that have some sense of collective leadership is is increasing. There's a whether that's an exco or a leadership team, or a senior management team, there's lots of names, but there's definitely more of that happening, more recognition of it. But like I said, it's surprisingly hard to make that team more than the sum of its parts. And why is that? Why is it so hard? There's a great quote from Peter Senge in his book called The Fifth Discipline from 20 years ago around how organizations all learn. And he says, you can put a group of executives, each with an IQ of 120, into a team, and as a team, their collective IQ can be 63. And I think that's a really powerful moment to, to, to think about that is the actual the, the, the collective intelligence of a group of people doesn't come from their individual IQ. It comes from the gaps and dynamics, the relationships between them. It's almost in the gaps between the people, right? And there's great research on this from the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence showing that the power of a team in solving problems and doing great thinking, the kind of stuff you want your organization to do, it comes from that, the dynamics between them. It comes from the emotional intelligence amongst the members, the quality of listening, how they build on each other. So those are the things we've got to get better at is uh, the actual the EQ of your team underpins its IQ, if you like. Okay. Well, I'm interested in your opinion. Is EQ something that can be learned? I believe that it is. I've seen in myself, my EQ has improved a little bit over time because when I used to work for other people in, in the kind of C-suite role in marketing, my EQ was very average and I've got no bones about that. It's not my strongest suit. But nowadays I spend all my life thinking about what you're thinking and what people in the room are thinking and about the dynamics in the room. So I'm very attuned to it. And so my EQ has increased a little bit over time. I'm still not the best at it, but it's um, it's slightly above average now. So, so I know that if we can spend more time thinking about what others are feeling and less time on ourselves, that you can improve it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would concur. I think the very essence of learning starts with awareness. And if you have no awareness for the necessity or requirement or impact of EQ, your likelihood to develop that further is extremely low. Once you've been exposed to the, the power of it, whether it be EQ or any other type of learning, I think if you've got that awareness, you can then start with the process with a growth mindset being open, you can start learning, learning with it. So um, dive us a bit deeper again, Rob, if you were to start working with a team, uh, leaders called you in and saying, hey, we're, we like this idea of collective leadership. We'd like to develop the team more. How do you go about um, firstly assessing their current level of uh, collective leadership? Uh, or let, let me start with that question. How do you assess a, a current team's capability of collective leadership? Hmm. Yeah, look, so I'll just go back one tiny step. So what I get called in normally is, is fixing teams that have become a bit dysfunctional. 
forming new teams uh, and getting teams to work a bit better or future planning where we're doing strategy, right? So, so if we take that moment, you said like a, a leader's been interested in like, how do we get a, the team to the next level, right? Which might come with that kind of fixing bit. Then I've built a diagnostic that goes with the book to assess the behaviors of the team. So I look at emotionally intelligent behaviors that are observable in that team. And I assess that and I get the team to kind of self-assess as well. And with any survey or diagnostic, I do not say it's definitive. I've based it on available science and evidence in my experience. But where it comes really useful is the, the dialogue that you can build when you show the results to that group of seven or nine people. And then the, um, the way you can shift their behaviours based on that diagnostic. So, so we're definitely coming in with a diagnostic and then we can measure that over time. We can target certain behaviors. We can make it observable and visible. And we can, we can create a baseline and we can go on a journey. So, so all of those things are based on assessing the behaviors of the team, their listening skills, how they build on each other, how they react to each other, which is, which is interesting. And you can surface that for the team. And the, the interesting moments is when they realize they've all got quite different perspectives and you can start to align them and, and, and think about how other people see the team. Rob, could you give us a bit of insight into what would be some of the questions or areas you'd be looking at to assess the uh, EQ of a team? Yeah, so the three areas, if I'm looking at the EQ, the first I call the emotional foundations of the team, which actually involves aligning upon why we exist, what we're here to do, and how we operate. So that's, that's the very foundational thing is some agreement on what is this thing called a leadership team. And that's the first conversation we're going to have, right? It's about the emotional foundations, the bedrock of the team. The second thing we're going to look at is going to be the behavioral norms. And I'm going to look for signaling. How do people actually acknowledge each other's contribution? So the, the bad stuff is the eye rolling. The good stuff is the, is the, the listening and signaling respect for someone's point of view. So after we've gone to those behavioral norms, so things like signaling and listening and building on each other's point of view, the third thing I'm going to measure is whether people take the emotional temperature of the room. And this, this example is many teams I've worked with, some of them have been working together for 10 years, and they don't really take time to check in and say, how is life? How is your 14-year-old doing? How do they go at the gala last week? How's your wife's new job? And that stand stuff sounds very trite, but the best teams do that. They actually know they do an emotional check-in to say, how are you? How is the human behind the colleague? And they also might check in at the end of meetings. say, how do you feel that meeting went? So, so most teams don't do that. They don't take enough time to do that. They just focus on the work. And if they do have a leadership team event, they sit in the restaurant talking about work. Right? So we want to take the emotional temperature of the team through those check-in moments. So those are the three things I'm going to measure is the foundations, the behaviors, and the check-ins. And um, that, that surfaces really great opportunities for the team to behave in slightly different ways. And when you're first working with a team and you're trying to get them to bring that uh, emotional check-in element, uh, do you get them to like structure that as part of the agenda of, of doing that in, or do, are you able to just encourage it and it starts happening naturally? Or do you have to kind of force the behavior a little bit at the start? Often what we're going to do is try and improve the vulnerability in a team. This comes back to the work from Lencioni, right, where we talk about trust, 
trust is underpinned by being a little bit vulnerable and feeling safe that I can say a bit about myself. So I'll often do that exercise at the front of a workshop, which says, tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was your biggest challenge? A classic exercise. And this just completely changes the tone of the meeting. People share sometimes quite emotional things um, about how they struggled in their childhood with their father or how a sibling passed away. Really sad stuff that they've never shared with the leadership team before. And it completely changes the tone of the subsequent meeting and increases those trust bonds very rapidly. And it's not to say you can fix leadership teams overnight, but by doing things like that, having that human conversation for half an hour or an hour at the start of a session, you really do have conversations that are deeper than they've ever had before. And some of the feedback, you know, we literally get written comments saying that was the deepest and best conversation we've ever had. So that vulnerability is an interesting way to start that conversation. And Rob, as a facilitator, how do you handle it when uh, you ask that question and someone goes, my childhood was perfect, uh, nothing wrong with me, I'm, I'm all good? Well, you can pretty much divide people into two camps that, that roughly half the people say that, but then they can come up with something that was a bit of a challenge for them, like how to compete with their amazing sibling, for example. Um, and half the people had got something that was quite challenging. So it literally does break pretty much down the middle. And once you've had seven people go around, you know, I'm just as interested in the listening skills. So the people who had the perfect childhood and very happy and amazing parents, I'm interested in how they're listening and signaling their respect for the other people's vulnerability. So it doesn't matter too much about what people say as long as someone says something is a little bit vulnerable. Is <laughs> You're looking at the dynamics in the group as a whole. And what about if you're really feeling that some – one of the participants is not showing any, any vulnerability and that is, you know, part of the point of the exercise that you're running as a facilitator. How do you try to draw that, draw that person out into a bit more of a vulnerable position? Yeah. Look, I, there's a story in my book about this where at the end of 2020, I, I was running this exercise called high points, low points, turning points. And I was getting members of the leadership team to each share some of that. And the journeys were quite emotional, you know, We'd, we'd just been running so hard. I was like, look, before we start planning 2021, let's just have a moment to reflect, which is a really important moment for leadership team. And there was one particular team whose leader I'm going to call Brian because I changed the names of all my stories for obvious reasons. Sure. So, so a member of Brian's team decided to go all in on the vulnerability and say, I don't know where I am right now. I'm not sure I'm making any difference. I'm not sure this job is right for me. And said that in front of her leader, Brian, and, and, and the rest of the team. And I was, you know, I was actually watching this on Zoom, right? But you could see the room just didn't react to it. Everyone got super uncomfortable. And the leader came back with a very rational response, basically saying, no, that's not true. We really value you. And so in that particular instance, um, what I had to do was have a quiet word with Brian in the break and really kind of work on that and get Brian to reflect on that reaction. Because you have to, you have to signal your respect and your you know, trust. We talk about trust comes from vulnerability, but I think a researcher called Paul Zach worked on things called vulnerability loops and trust loops, where it's actually the giver of vulnerability builds their trust based on the reaction that the receiver gave to them. So, so Brian's reaction really didn't help. So I'm sometimes having little words on the side to, to try and smooth the way. But that's quite rare. Luckily, most of the people in leadership teams have at least a base level of EQ where they understand how to react to someone who opens up and maybe sheds a tear. Because, you know, quite often in those kind of conversations, 
at the back end of last year in particular, people were shedding a tear about the, the impacts on their family from being in a lockdown in Melbourne for three months, right? Um, and the struggles of their teenagers and the, the relationship issues they've had. So, so yeah, I mean, I sometimes talk about, you know, do, do people cry in your leadership team meetings? And that's an extreme example, but maybe that's okay. So, yeah, we have to manage that vulnerability carefully. Just to help us close out that uh, particular example you've shared, what guidance did you give to Brian about how he may have uh, responded to that more effectively? Well, that's always going to be a coaching conversation, right, generally. I mean, sometimes I'm going to step in with a piece of feedback. You know, is it okay if I give you a bit of feedback about what I saw? If I've got a little bit more time, it's going to be, how do you think your direct report responded to that? Do you think that went as well as it could have done? What else could you have done? So I'm going to try and coach the leader through that and give them that piece of awareness and try and have a little breakthrough light bulb moment with them. So it's not always easy because actually the, the trickiest thing with leadership teams is when the actual leader is part of a particular problem. That's hard because you're going to do you do individual coaching. Like if there's uh, yeah, if there's one specific person who's causing a lot of the problems in the leadership team, then you have to address that first. You can't just do this kumbaya let's all talk about how amazing things are or our problems. Like you, you've got to address the individual first if you identify that, which is you know, about 20% of the time there's an individual who's causing a lot of the problems. Got it. Okay. So let's just come back to this uh, three types of intelligence. We've talked a, a little bit about EQ, IQ, and then the practical application in a, in a team. Can you just tell us about how you observe those things are interlinked? And again, how you go about, how you look at the various levels that each individual member of the team has around those three elements, and then how you try to bring that together as a team where we're now talking about a huge number of combinations of those three elements in a, in a team, and how you then try to build the sum of the parts to be more than just the, just the parts themselves. Look, I come back to a little bit of a, a realization I had about a friend of mine, right? Who I'm going to call Billy, right? So Billy uh, is a very smart guy with you know high-powered degree from a big university, you know, like super smart guy. Um, but Billy's common sense and emotional intelligence sometimes is lacking. I always used to wonder. I was like, if, if Billy's got such a high IQ. Why is he not able to work out his way through life? And then, you know, one point a few years ago, I had this realization. I was like, oh, okay. So these are different types of intelligence, like common sense and practical skills are different to IQ, which is different to EQ. And in individuals, that's, I believe that is the case, that IQ, EQ, and what I call PQ are slightly different things that can be unrelated. Whereas in teams, that's not the case. So I've already mentioned the research shows that the IQ of a team, its ability to solve intellectual tough problems, is highly related to its EQ. So there is an overlap. And I'd also say that the ability to drive action, so let's say you've got a great foundation with teams and emotional intelligence, it's solving problems well, and you've added that kind of layer of IQ in, then it does actually deliver results. Um, and that's where you, know, you are looking for different people in the team to bring those skills in. You've got those people in your team who are saying, this is all very well and good, but like, how do we roll this out? How is it going to affect people? And you can bring in that diversity perspective where you've got some people who are coming in with better EQ, some people who've got the PQ. So you're looking for those skills and, the, and, and you just got to facilitate that carefully because you're going to have people that want to rush to a decision and talk about the action plan and 
like mapping it all out. And you're going to have people that want to go navel gazing for weeks before they come up with a solution. So as long as you can manage those different strengths of your team, then you can try and build all those types of intelligence into how the team operates. So it does require quite a mindful approach. It does require you know, the diagnostic and the measurement. Um, but luckily, you know, there's, there's a real kind of good presence in case studies I've got that, that you can get all those types of intelligence in your team. Mm, great. And Rob, you talked about the different types of teams or stage of the journey that teams are at that normally call you in to work with them. Um, I think there was three and, and one was the they're kind of a bit broken and they're looking for some help. Uh, they're reasonably high achieving already and they're trying to go to the next level. And I think you mentioned the third. Did I record? Yeah, like I was talking about the fixing, forming new teams oh, and future planning. So yeah. I, I do a lot of work with kind of strategic thinking. Yeah. I'm interested, do you see the biggest payback uh, through the skills that you're able to deliver into a team and, and assist and coach them? Do you get the most reward value perceived out of the fixes or the, you know, the high achieving team that you're um, are looking to be better? I think there is great value for reducing the pain that leaders and leadership teams have. So for me personally, I do like it for example i was called in um, a couple of years ago to a post-merger leadership team which is quite common where yes. i'll get called in and um the, the, there's eight people in the leadership team four from each company that merged and there's still two camps you know a year after the merger and so i do take great satisfaction from working with them over a period of time because i normally work with teams over six months or a year rather than just a one-off and I do take great satisfaction in seeing them say things like we're, we're closer than we've ever been. It feels like one team. So that's great satisfaction for me. But where's the ROI for the company who's paying for it? And the ROI is going to be in the improved quality of strategy and execution. So there's a great combination of uh, the leaders feel like this is more enjoyable. I'm more supported. I have a proper team around me. I enjoy going to our leadership team meetings. I feel more inspired. So there's great value for the individuals in that. And there's great value for the organization in the strategy and the execution, which relate to the IQ and the PQ, right? So, um, but yeah, personally, I love it. I love fixing. Nice. Okay. And talk to us about the, uh, the journey. So uh, there's no magic wand here. There's no silver bullets. Um, you can start giving some frameworks, but what does the journey of a collective leadership team look like? Look, I will often counsel leaders to say it's going to take a year to get you from mediocre to good, great, high performing, whatever you want to call it. And that can be a bit scary. But the good thing is we can make some immediate progress. So there's progress from day one, but there's not perfection. So we all know that you've got to come back then. You know, you make some progress on day one. You've got to deliver on that over the next two or three months. I come back in. And I call these basically I'll look at having what we call a pit stop every quarter with a leadership team. Every three months, we take a day off the racetrack to actually talk about where's the team at, how's the strategy, can the strategy improved, how's our project execution going? And we'll review all that, and then we'll put them back out on the track again. And those quarterly interventions where we can measure the diagnostic every three months as well, that's how we go on the journey. So it's a very tailored journey, but it requires typically – you know, let's say four of those interventions and some work in between where I might come in for an hour or two to, to help that team on that journey. And after a year, they've really kind of cemented those emotional foundations. They've delivered and improved a strategy over time. And they've got some real runs on the board from their projects and productivity. So there's, there's, a, there's immediate gains after day one, 
but the lasting benefits sometimes take up to a year for a leadership team. And I also do work with teams that are, um, aren't permanent teams, but um, often my work is with teams that are a leadership team that we want to have in place for at least a couple of years. Okay. And pit stop one, three, three months into you working with them, what would be some of the uh, milestone changes you'd be looking for in a, in a team after three months? So the, the, the first thing we're going to try and build is the emotional intelligence of the team, really, for most teams. Yeah? Now, some teams I'm coming in, that's already really high. So that's not the case. But generally speaking, we're going to work on the emotional intelligence first. So three months in, I'm going to be looking for those visibly different behaviors. I'm going to be looking for the shifts in the diagnostic. I'm going to be looking for the comments and the comfort and the trust of people. And I'm going to be trying to measure that. I'm going to be trying to measure that rather than just say, well, this, isn't it wonderful? Three months in, we're going to have another good conversation about that. It's like, what have we improved and what's still yet to go? And I want people to be honest about that and say, you know, I'm still not feeling comfortable to voice my opinion. And I want to encourage people to actually be able to do that with me in the room. It's a lot easier with a facilitator in the room. Leadership teams tend to be on the best behavior. It's very different if the leader's having to facilitate because people are trying to impress them. People are unsure about what the leader thinks of them. So I think just having a facilitator in the room, I'm a bit biased, but I think uh, it does make a difference. Mm. Okay. Maybe some of our listeners are out there going, yeah, Rob, I'm really on your wavelength. This sounds, sounds really helpful. Um, maybe I'll give you a call. Maybe I'll read your book. And uh, what might be some of the things I could start thinking about doing right now as a, as a leader? I'm about to have a SLT, Senior Leadership Team, meeting uh, tomorrow. I'd like to uh, start growing our EQ. Don't have the benefit of a skilled facilitator in the room but as a leader i really like this idea of collective leadership i'd like to get us on the journey even if it's just a baby baby step what would be your guidance as a place they could start to do that with their team yeah so the first thing i would advise a leadership team to do if, you, if you've got an hour and a half where you can actually dedicate to things that aren't immediate fires that you've got to put out right i would say find an hour and a half and answer the question about why do we exist as a team which sounds very ethereal abstract but actually i want to make it really practical for you so imagine you've got the trivial pursuit wheel in front of you with six wedges in it and i want you to think about who are the six types of stakeholders that we have as a leadership team so it's going to be the shareholders the investors the board it's going to be customers it's going to be our staff it's also going to be ourselves how are we growing as being from being this leadership team and there might be a couple of other groups. And I want you to put those, imagine those six wedges. So you've named the six different groups of stakeholders that we serve as a leadership team. And then against each of those wedges, I'm going to get you to say, what's the type of value we actually create for that group? And value can come in different types of currencies, from money to freedom to control to happiness, whatever those types of value are. And then once you've done those, those maybe the six wedges or five or seven, depending on the type of your organization, I'm going to say, well, how do you summarize that? What are the top three types of value that you're here to create? And that's the starting point for a leadership team to work out why do we exist. From there, if you've got a little bit more time, you're going to say, well, to create that type of value, how are we going to operate? And at a very functional level, a lot of leadership teams only have one type of meeting. They have the thing called the leadership team meeting every one, two, four weeks. And that tends to get incredibly operational. So you need to at least have two different types of meetings. Like you've got a more strategic one, maybe slightly less frequently, and you've got a more operational one really frequently. On top of that idea, you're also going to have a quarterly pit stop and an annual retreat. So maybe there's 
four types of different meetings in my schedule across the year. So that answers some of the how question. And then you also, the third thing you might do, you've got another bit of time is to say the what question. What are the three most important topics that we need to be addressing right now? Because time and again, I ask this question my diagnostic. As a leadership team, do we focus on the most important questions? And the ratings for that are almost invariably lower than you want them to be. A lot of people think we're not talking about the high value questions. So those are the first three questions. They're the emotional mm -hmm. foundations. They are why, what, and how. And, uh, you know, you can do that yourself. It's a little bit easier if you've got someone to facilitate it with sure. experience, but so you can definitely start to address that some yourself. Okay. What are you seeing as the common themes that uh, people want their leadership team to be talking about and they're not? I think people would say we're too focused on the short term. We're too focused on the short term. We're not thinking about the bigger picture enough. We don't go back and talk about the strategy that we spent three weeks doing last year. We don't think about the impact on our people and culture. We're focused on, this is kind of classic stuff, right? We've got, we've got a short-term mindset. Uh, we don't delve deep enough into problems. We're too quick to put a Band-Aid on a solution, those things. So in essence, I call that leadership teams can be, when it comes to facing down problems, we're too narrow, we're too shallow, and we're too short-term. And so the antidote to that is from a problem-solving perspective, you've got to think a bit deeper about what your problems are before you try and solve them. You've got to think about wider, about a wider range of potential ways forward. And you've got to think a bit further ahead about how this might play out and what the knock-on consequences can be. So those are some of the things I think people lack is they're too, too narrow, too shallow, too short-term. Mm. Yeah, good insights, Rob. And one of the challenges of organizations that certainly we try to assist with is we often see organizations that have, have had fantastic development of their senior leadership team. They get the opportunity to spend away days with the likes of someone like yourself, Rob. They get to evolve and, and develop. But then when it actually comes to the execution of strategy, that is often done by team leaders that are closer to the to the front line because they're actually implementing the, the strategy. And there has been this observation for us that there's often this big capability gap between senior leaders getting lots of time invested, money invested in their development as leaders. And then there's this gap down to the people that are expected to um, somehow magically be able to execute the strategy, but maybe without that development. Has that been something you've observed? And, and if it is, how have you tried to guide the organizations you work with to, to close that capability gap? Look, this is a huge, huge question for me uh, that I spent a lot of my time thinking about is what happens once you've written a strategy. And we all know the strategy execution gap, which is what we're talking about here. And you've highlighted the capability gap um, further down the organization or wider out in the organization. For me, the bigger piece of the puzzle is the communication gap. So we know that 94% of frontline staff either have never heard of what the strategy is or don't understand what it means for them. So the biggest opportunity is to simplify and communicate the strategy to your frontline leaders and have them communicate it to the frontline staff. So the first thing I would do is actually around the communication of that. And um, so the ways I do that is we, we work on ways of getting your strategy down into one page. We then make a roadmap of all how all the products, projects um, are going to play out over time, what the priorities are. We tie them to really clear KPIs and goals at the end of this visual roadmap, right? It's got, and the roadmap particularly have several lanes for product, people, partners, profit, whatever it might be. 
Um, and then we're going to have a dashboard that we're going to measure and communicate. So we want to use all these ways of making the strategy more robust and improving the communication right down to the front line. So that's the first thing I'm going to work on is that communication piece. Once we've got that right, then you can build on the capability. But I don't think there's any point in them working on the capability until people know what the strategy is. And so time and time again, we say, you know, you've got to communicate the strategy 10x more than you thought. Yeah. Um, that, that one town hall you did in January just does not cut it. I'm sorry. No. No. I think there's that uh, very valuable saying that uh, no one in your organization will be familiar with the strategy until long after you're sick of talking about it. Yeah, which I think more leaders are aware of that kind of quote now, which is great. So I don't have much resistance in that. I just need to make people stick with the program, you know. Yeah, very, very good. Um, now, Rob, you have recently uh, authored your book, uh, Unlock, Leveraging the Hidden Intelligence in Your Leadership Team. And, of course, the uh, graphic that is on the cover with the network of, of nodes now has much deeper significance for me uh, following our discussion. So uh, that was a good little uh, light bulb moment for me. How do people find the book? So the book is on Amazon and all good online book retailers. So you can also Google it. If you Google Rob Pine Unlock, you'll find it. And you can buy it direct from my website if you want, but it's on Amazon. So it's pretty easy. Um, ebook or paperback. Fantastic. And we'll make sure we put links to your website uh, and the Amazon link to your book in the show notes so people can find it nice and easily. Um, how else could we help you, Rob? What else would you like to talk to our audience about? Look, I think if, if I consider my own journey and the way I founded my business eight years ago to help the world make better decisions, uh, you know, I do have that kind of sense of purpose around, you know, I, I kind of visibly my work is around leadership teams, but actually I'm, I'm, I'm willing and able to help anyone who's making big decisions, particularly ones that affect a lot of people. You know, how do we do that better? And I think we can do it better in teams if we structure them the right way. So uh, anyone who is going through some kind of big decisions. Look, I'm happy to kind of talk to you via LinkedIn or an email or whatever and um, try and make the world, help, help, help the world make better decisions. That's my kind of concern about the world is when um, very important groups of people make decisions that you just shake your head at, whether it be about a vaccine rollout or whatever it might be. Um, a few quality what, examples available to us at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and we all see those and we kind of just wonder how on earth did that happen? And it happened because of, People didn't, well, one of the reasons, you know, people didn't listen to the teams around them. They didn't make great collective decisions. Good insights. Okay. So in our show notes, we'll put uh, links to your website, link to the book. Um, if you're okay with it, Rob, we'll also uh, put direct contact details in there. So if people are looking for help with their leadership team or would like to fire you a question, we can they can connect with you on, on there. Um, I would like to say, you know, with gratitude, one, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I found our discussion really, really interesting. Um, we're definitely very aligned in how we think about teams and, and leadership. So that's been, um, <laughs> I kind of chuckle because it's like, uh, is that group think we're, oh, you think like I do, so you must be a good guy. Um, no, I, I uh, genuinely believe that uh, we're aligned in our thinking and that thinking is for better organizations, better outcomes for individuals, better outcomes for their teams and better outcomes for their stakeholders, which you, you spend a little bit of time time talking about. So uh, thank you for furthering the cause out there in the world um, and helping organizations make better decisions. It's, it's great work. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye, Rob.